Transformation Station. And as they're sliding out, let me encourage you to grab a copy of God's Word or turn your Bible on, power it on. And, and, um, and John chapter 1. We're going to be in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. That's the, the fourth account of the Gospel there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Bibles we provide, that'll be page 886, the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the prologue, the first 18 verses of this gospel account. Well, this past week, as you're turning there, um, our staff, along with our wives, uh, we had the privilege of traveling to North Carolina to be a part of the Unite Conference. This is a conference um, put on by the Pillar Network. And some of, you, some of you know this, some of you may not. We're a part of a church planning network called the Pillar Network, a, a network of like-minded churches. There are some others in the Boston area, but um, from, from Miami to Seattle, we are part of a network. Kevin Sanders, you've met him. He was playing guitar and singing over here, who's planting in Arlington and apprenticing with us right now. He was a part of a Pillar Network church. And, and through this network, we got paired up um, to plant churches. And that's what this network is about. It's about planting churches together. And so as a part of this conference, Tanner was actually down in Raleigh last Sunday. He had the opportunity to preach at Open Door Baptist Church, our sending church. And so I should have shared this last week and we should have prayed for him. Um, but I hear that it was a great Sunday. Um, but this was the first time that he was able to go back on a Sunday to be with our sending church. And that was a blessing um, for them. Um, and then this past week was a blessing. But also this past week, uh, we were able to go and worship at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, Pastor Tanner also shared the word in chapel that Tuesday morning. And did a great job. If you want to, you can go on the Southeastern website and, and you can watch it. Um, I'm sure you look great standing up there um, giving that word. But really, Tanner did a great job. Um, but before he got up to preach, his mentor, Dr. Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern, Tanner was his intern for a number of years, introduced him. And he's sharing all these great things. And what he's doing is, is Dr. Aiken was trying to convince us on, on why Tanner has the credentials and why we should listen in to what he has to say to us. And now I already knew Tanner, so I didn't need the intro. Uh, but when we turn to the Gospel of John today, we are looking at the prologue, and what's going on is John has basically given us the intro to convince us why we need to pay attention to everything that he's about to tell us about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this prologue is, is the introduction to John. Some have said that, that these 18 verses are like the foyer to the gospel of John. They're, they're the intro that are leading the way into everything else that we're going to hear about in this gospel. And so I believe that John lays it out really clear for us why we should pay attention to who this Jesus guy is. And so that's, that's my hope today. I just want to take us to the text and say let's, let's hear God's word through the author, the God, through John, the author, on why we should pay attention to this guy, Jesus, and, and the implications that he has for your life and for my life. And so we're going to jump right in here in verse 1 
And the first truth that John wants us to get here in this intro is this, is that Jesus is the eternal and pre-existent word. Look here with me in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You'll realize pretty soon here, as John begins this gospel with these words, in the beginning, and your mind is already soaring and going back to Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of all beginnings, where, where God writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is no accident the way John is portraying Jesus here in the opening chapters of his gospel. And this imagery doesn't just start with those few words there in the beginning. It continues in these first five verses. You heard these words, life, light, darkness, You see, in the very beginning, God said, let there be light. He spoke into the darkness, and what happened? There was light. And so John is portraying for us Jesus in comparison to creation. And I think he's doing this for a number of strategic reasons. And the first one is this. John's presenting Jesus, his coming, and his mission as a renewal of the original Creation In Jesus, God is beginning this work of a new creation. So you've got the first creation, and, and we know how that went, and now we have God implementing a new creation, and it's going to be through Jesus. You may be just sitting there asking, man, why do we need a new creation? The reason is, is because we are all broken. I'm broken you're broken, and we live in a broken world. You see, the story of Scripture tells us pretty soon after that first creation that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and as a result, they faced the judgment that God said, if you eat of this tree, you will die. They experienced physical death and spiritual death. They were separated from the presence of God, and they were kicked out of the garden. And now as we think about brokenness, we see that their their, their choice to rebel against God had tragic consequences and their sin spread like a virus and it infected all of creation. I mean, just look back in the past week. I'm gonna share a few, but you can probably share a number of experiences of brokenness either in your life or those that you've seen in the world. For instance, some of you may be aware that this past week we had the strongest ever hurricane recorded. You guys hear about that? That just hit Mexico, 200 miles an hour, sustained winds. This is the same storm that's now passed over into Texas, and that's dropping up, upper, upwards of like 30 inches of rain, which reminds us of just a few weeks ago in the area that our own Will Pope and many of his family were affected by like 20 plus inches of rain in South Carolina. You go talk to Will, and you hear about what his family's going through, and you hear of just evidences of brokenness, of living in a fallen 
world. But yesterday, many of you guys know that, that I love college football. I played college football growing up. Um, but the sad news at Oklahoma State yesterday, some of you may have heard about it. They were having homecoming parade. And there is a lady who was under the influence of alcohol, drove her car into this parade, killed four people, and has injured 47. And, and like they're there celebrating a homecoming for the college that they either went to or loved, and then this tragedy that they didn't even see coming and experience. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We could go on and on about evidences of brokenness in this world. And so you ask me, why do we need a new creation? That is why we need a new creation. And so as we reflect back at this initial creation, we see that the first creation was both physical and it was spiritual. And as we think of brokenness, there are always physical and spiritual elements to brokenness. I mean, the fact is that all of us are going to physically die one day, some sooner than others. But we also experience spiritual brokenness and separation from God. Hey, some of you have even come here today. Maybe the reason you're here today is because of the brokenness in your life, and you are coming to hear hope, the good news of the gospel of John, is that is why Jesus came. And so we're going to see as we study John, you're going to get to John chapter 3, and he's going to talk about how a person must be born again, that you must experience a a new birth. And so spiritually, if we are going to enter into a relationship with God, we need to go from death to life. We need to be born again. And and John's going to talk about it. Jesus is going to talk about that. But not only are we going to see physical rebirth and spiritual rebirth, we're going to see this physical rebirth as well. And so Jesus promises that not only is there spiritual born again, but that one day he's going to return and that there's going to be a resurrection. And so that even our bodies are going to be redeemed and are going to be restored. And so all of that, as we hear these words, in the beginning, John is, is bringing this new creation imagery for us. But we also have this word, in the beginning was the word. We often don't speak of Jesus in this way, or or we don't speak of a person being a word. We're going to find out later on in John, actually in verse 17, that he specifies who is this word. This word is Jesus Christ. But by presenting Jesus this way, John is reminding us that in the beginning, God's word was powerful and effective, and so will be his word through Jesus. I mean, just reflect with me. In the very beginning, God said, did you hear that? God said, let there be light. You know what the text says? There was light. And we continue through that Genesis account. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered in the one place and the dry land appear. And it says, and it was so. And you go through that chapter one account of Genesis and it's, this is the paradigm. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. It reminds us of some other verses that we have in scripture here. Psalm 33, six. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host, or, or like Isaiah 55, 
verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus is being presented as this word, as the word of God, this word of God from Isaiah who goes forth and accomplishes the very purpose that God sent it for. So by presenting Jesus as the word, John is presenting Jesus as the final and definitive self-revelation of God. If you want to know what God is like, John is saying, Jesus' life and his sayings are speaking. They are communicating. They are divine self-expression. Not just of wisdom or an idea, but it's a person who is showing us who God is like. And so with that as a background, let's proceed through these first few verses and, and, and look at the identity of this word. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This, this phrase, and the word was with God, affirms that the word and God are two distinct beings. The word was with God, God the Father. It also affirms the word existed before creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. In the beginning, for anything was ever created, there was the word, and there was God. And then John clarifies that for us in the very next phrase by saying, and the word was God. This statement is shocking because it affirms that the word is just as much God as the Father is. The word was God. This affirmation would seem to fly in the face against the monotheistic bedrock of Judaism. Look, you guys get this. You take, if you were to take your Bible and just go to the Old Testament, you could go to Deuteronomy 6 and look at the Shema, which says, we affirm the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or go to the Ten Commandments and look at the very first one. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Look, Judaism was a monotheistic religion, and Jesus is coming, and in his coming, he is living among people that this is the bedrock. This was there as, um, what's it say here? Christopher Wright says this would have been the assumptive bedrock of Jesus and his followers. But you know what's ironic? When we read through the New Testament, John and and the rest of the authors, they don't seem to be aware of this tension that Jesus is God, and yet Judaism promotes monotheism. You guys hear that? And so we're going to see this as we go through John. Um, But it's going to be pretty clear as we look at John here, that Jesus was claiming 
to be God. I mean, this is, this is ultimately why they sent him to the cross. Look at some of these references. John chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Continue on. Look at chapter 8. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Or John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus not only claims to be with God in the beginning, Jesus claims to be God. And if there's any question concerning his divinity, look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Listen to another translation here. The net version of the Bible says this way. All things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Uh, Before I moved to Boston, Uh, Five years ago, I had the opportunity to work with students at a church in Durham. And one of the resources that we used was a resource, Stand to Reason. A a guy by the name of Greg Kukul was the president of this ministry. He does a lot in apologetics. And and he shared um, a very convincing way to, to use this verse to show that Jesus is God. If you've had any interaction with maybe a Jehovah's Witness and they've come to your door, what they're going to say is is if you were to read their Bible in John 1-1, this is how it's going to read. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And, you know, you could pull out your Greek if you wanted to, and you could get into a debate. But what Greg says, he says, look, just go down to verse 3 and pull out a napkin. And I think I've got an image here on the screen. And you could do this with anybody by using verse 3. Let's check out the next slide here. We've got a box. And and he he says, on your napkin, draw a box and then draw a line down the middle. And on one side of it, you need to write, not created. And on the other side, he says, all things created. And he says, read John 1, 3 with them. And he says, all things created were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You just ask his question, so which of these boxes does God belong in? Like, take a quarter, and, and you're sitting at the table there and say, okay, which one of these boxes does God belong in? Which one does he belong in? Not created. It's pretty simple. So you've got God who's not created, and then on the other side, you have everything That was created. Now, verse 3 says this. All things were made through who? This word, which later we're going to see is Jesus. And it says, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, who made all things? Jesus. So, you could write underneath that right side there, all things that have been created. In the very bottom there, there, you could write, Jesus created all all things. You guys follow me here? He's at like the bottom outside of the box. Now, what he says to do now is there are two laws that I would share with them, and and they are this. 
The first one is this. You have the law of, hang in there with me, the excluded middle, which says this. There, a thing was either created or it was not created. Is there any other option? No, there, there's no like in between, between being created and not being created. So there's no in between. These are, are, are two options, the law of the excluded middle. And then he says the law of non-contradiction, which says a thing can't be both created and not created. You guys follow me here? I mean, this is just simple logic. Based on those, give them a quarter and say, which one of these boxes does Jesus go in? Was he created or was he not created? If he created all things that have ever existed, well, then he can't go in that box. He's got to go in the box that is not created. And John is making this, I mean, even the like language of verse 3, he's going at lengths to help us get this. Jesus Even though he was in the beginning, he was with God, he is not created. He is God. And because of this, we see a few other implications in verses 4 and 5, which would not be true if he was not the creator. Verse 4 says, in him was life. In him was life was life, and the life was the light of men. This is an allusion to Psalm 36, verse 9, which says this, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And Jesus, John is saying, that's Jesus. You, you want to look through the Old Testament and talk about the fountain of life and the one you go to? And John is saying, that's Jesus. And, and he can claim that because he's God. In him was life. And so as we think of even these two words, life and light, the opposite of life is death, and the opposite of light is darkness, physical And spiritual death has reigned ever since the fall, as well as moral darkness, namely the world alienated from God. The world ignorant, blind, fallen, sinful, dominated by Satan. And get this, Jesus is a light so strong that no darkness can overcome it. Though they sought in his life to overcome it, Satan working through Judas and the Jewish leaders, they could not contain the light. Jesus has come to give life both now and forever to those who are dead so that they can live in the light unclouded by the presence and power of sin. We all need this and long for this. And so as you're in the foyer to the gospel of John, I want you to hear John saying, as you read about the sayings of Jesus and the life of Jesus, know this. He is where life is found. Do you believe that today? 
Do, do you truly believe that life is found in Jesus? Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. And so as we look at the word as preexistent and eternal, we see that God the creator and the word through whom he created are inseparable. They're, they're distinct, but you cannot think of Jesus apart from God the creator. And as a result, there is no way to God except through the word. Life is found in him. That's why later Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's because of his relationship with God. He was with God in the beginning. And so John intends for, for this whole gospel that he writes, he intends that you need to read it in light of these opening words. Jesus' deeds and words are the words and deeds of God. Now let's move on to the second truth here. I want us to jump down to verse 9. I'm going to come back to 6 through 8 here in a second. But the second truth that we see here is that, that Jesus is the incarnate word. Verse 9, John writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We see here in verse 9 that John begins with these words, the true light. What we've moved from now is the preexistent, eternal word who was with God in the beginning and who created all things. This true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We're moving from his preexistence to his incarnation. And this, these words here, the true light, also ring with numerous allusions from the Old Testament, not only with creation, but specifically in Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who spoke of the coming Messiah. Now, just to step back for a second, last week we looked at John chapter 20 and the purpose statement, which says what? That Jesus did many signs... John says, I've recorded these signs that you might believe that Jesus is what? The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He's referring there to the Old Testament, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by leaving, believing, you might have life in his name. So when we think of Jesus as the Messiah, John here has Isaiah in his mind as he's sharing this. I just want to share a few of these from Isaiah 9. One is Isaiah 9, verse 2. Now, just to remind you, this is the, the same Isaiah 9 at Christmas season where we sing, for unto us a child is born, and we're going to say his name shall be called what? Wonderful Father, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. You guys get that? That's Isaiah 9. Going back to verse 2, this is what it speaks of, this Messiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them a light has shone. So this coming promised one is, is one who is light shining in the darkness. He continues. We can look at a number. I want to go to chapter 49, verse 6, where Isaiah writes, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. By Jesus, by speaking of Jesus as the true light, John is presenting Jesus as the one who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes and expectations. He is the true light who brings light, notice this, to everyone. Go back to verse 9 in John. The true light which gives light to everyone. Now here's the deal. Not everyone sees and receives the light. But he is the true light that gives light to everyone. There is no other light. Jesus is the true light. And it's for all, as we're going to see later, that Jesus came to his own people, the Jews. They rejected him. But he says, to everyone who receives me, who believes you can become children of God. So Jesus is the true light. Even as we see in Isaiah here, it says he was a light for the nations. The good news of the gospel, even as I hear Elena, man, I love it, Elena going to India. She's going to the darkness. A few things that we can learn from the incarnation. She's also going to the nations. And it is the gospel that compels us to take it to those who have not heard. So we see that Jesus is the true light. We see that he was rejected by creation and by his own people. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John is highlighting the irony that Jesus created the world and yet the world does not know him. This is the tragedy of the world's rejecting the one through whom it was made. Andreas Kostenberger and his theology of John says this, the world should have welcomed its creator as a familiar friend, indeed as a hero, savior, and sovereign. Instead, it showed itself alien and antagonized, hostile and morally and spiritually dark, apostate, and fallen. Jesus was not only rejected, it says, by the world. It says he was rejected by his own people. In verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The first half of John's gospel, is John is going to document for us how, for the most part, Israel failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and thus has rejected the light. But there's good news here, beginning in verse 12. But there is reception by those who believe. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, it's hard to see this, just looking at these 18 verses. But most scholars have argued that there is a, there's a structure here 
to these first 18 verses a chiasm, where there's a part in the front that correlates to the part at the beginning. I just want to briefly show you that because there's some significance we can gain from that. In verse 1, it speaks of, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Do you see the correlation there? You have in the beginning, the word was with God. Now you have in verse 18, coming back to this thought that Jesus is with God. Now in verses 6 through 8, you go on down and you see a reference to John the Baptist. And him came as a witness. And then you'll see in verse 15, later on it corresponds, he returns to John the Baptist. And at the central part of this structure is verses 9 through 14. And, and these scholars argue that at the very center is, verses, is verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You say, John, what is the significance of this? Well, here's the point. God, John is not only introducing Jesus as God's self-disclosure of himself. He's also introducing the results of this gracious revelation. Why did Jesus come incarnate from God? It's so that you might become a child of God. You see, we have two familial relationships going on here. We, on the one hand, we see Jesus' relationship with the Father and this intimate, one-of-a-kind, only son of the Father that Jesus has. And then at the same time, Jesus is holding out through his incarnation that you can become a child of God if you will believe. And at the heart of the gospel, as we look at the life, the sayings, the work of Christ, is this. There is nothing that you can do to earn this. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. How is somebody born again to become a child of God? There's nothing you can do. This is the work of God. It is God who raises the dead. If we are dead spiritually, God must give life. So God, the good news is this though, that God is mighty to save and that he longs to give life as you respond in faith. To all who received him, to those who believed. And so later we're going to unpack probably the most familiar verse in the Bible that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that those who believe might have eternal life. God saves, we respond with faith. I don't come before God and say, God, look at all these good things I've done for you. Am I worthy to be your child? 
Look, there is nothing that we could lay before God that he would say, yes, man, look at all that great stuff. Come and be my child. There's nothing. And so, man, if you're here today, you've, you've been exploring just this Jesus thing. I know there's this temptation to think that, hey, that you're going to say, man, I'm going to go clean myself up, and then I'm going to come present myself before God as honorable so that he'll take me in, and, and you're going to labor for the rest of your life, and you're never going to be good enough. The good news of the gospel is not that you're good, but that God is gracious. It's that God saves sinners of whom we're the foremost. And so I don't come before God hiding and trying to come everything up. I come before God and say, God, I am dark. I am in darkness. I am in sin. I am in rebellion. I don't deserve anything from you. And I hear these words from God. He is rich in mercy and he is rich in steadfast love will you hear those today maybe for the first time there's nothing you can do to be born again you respond to the work of God through faith and it happens when you hear that God forgives sinners and you believe your eyes are opened to enter into a relationship with him. So we come to verse 14. And verse 14 constitutes the most concise verse in the New Testament on the incarnation. If, if John 1.1 made it clear that Jesus was fully God, John 1.14 makes it clear that Jesus was fully human. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John moves from a distant reporter to an eyewitness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory few things I want to unpack for you here real quick as our, as our time's running out. One, the word became flesh. The glorious, divine, pre-existent word has become flesh. He's been born as a frail human being just like you and I. Jesus took on flesh because this was the only way to bring about both physical and spiritual death. God is not doing salvation from a distant. He sent his son. He took on flesh, became just like one of us, was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And he dwelt among us. Literally, this word dwelt means that Jesus pitched his tent and took up residence among us. It's a reference to the Old Testament, the tabernacle, where God's Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of his presence, his glory. It was in the most holy of holies in the tabernacle. If you wanted to go see the glory of God, that's where it was. It's bringing up Moses who said, God, show me your glory. I'm not going to lead this people unless your glory, your visible manifest presence goes with us. You know what God tells Moses? God tells Moses in Exodus 33, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And so 
the very next chapter in Exodus 34, the Lord passes before Moses in a cleft of a rock, and he just lets him see his backside. And you know what the Lord, this is what he proclaims. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. John is suggesting that this glory can now be seen in Jesus. It's not in the tabernacle. It's not in the temple. In fact, Jesus is going to say, hey, tear this temple down and you'll raise it up in three days. He's going to say, I'm the new temple. And and he's going to create in the church the temple of God where his spirit dwells. Jesus is the one of a kind, unique son of God. It is in Jesus that we see God's complete and perfect expression of grace. What does it say here? We have seen his glory of of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Little side note here. As you think of the incarnation, I want you to think of mission. I'm just going to spend one minute here, and we could spend a lot of time. The incarnation is the perfect climax of the mission of God. We see God sending his son into the darkness. I just want to pose a few questions for you to think about. Look, when we talk about incarnation, like living, look, I'm not trying to replace Jesus. That doesn't mean that, like, I'm not being Jesus somebody. I want to point, I'm not Jesus. That's the message. Like, I want to point people to Jesus. But I want to live in such a way that displays the gospel. And so just think about this. How can we effectively minister to a lost world if we're not in it? How can we reach those who are far from God if we are not with them? How can we be salt and light in the darkest places of our city if we have no effective contacts or relationships in those areas? That's why I love Elena. She's going to the darkness. We don't flee. We hear the mission of God, and we take up the power of the gospel, and we say, where's the darkness? And I'm heading in with the light of the gospel. And there are a lot of dark places in our city. So I just want to plead with you that the goal of the Christian life is not to hole up in some way and keep the world from you. It's to take the power of the gospel through the Spirit and go to the darkness. Go to the poor. Go to the broken. Go to the homeless and hold out the light of the gospel. That's what we mean when we say we want to be a church that is in the city and for the city. And I will challenge all of you to first look at your neighborhood. Who was in your neighborhood? Where is darkness in your neighborhood? Like employ a neighborhood missiology where you say that God has providentially placed me in this neighborhood and these people to hold out the light of the gospel. And when our church gets that, that's when we're going to be making a huge difference in our city. When we've got a ton of people spread all over greater Boston that are saying, this is my neighborhood. I'm drawing a circle, a mile circle around my house, and I'm saying, it's mine. And God used me to reach darkness with the light of the gospel. Anybody with me? Like, when we wrap up today and we send this benediction, it's we're heading out into the darkness with the hope of the gospel. That's incarnation theology. You got me fired up up here. Come on. Let's wrap this thing up. Truth number three, Jesus is the apex of God's revelation. I'm just going to cover this briefly. Verse 15, John 
bore witness about him and cried out, This is of he of whom I said he comes after me. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Jump back up at verse 6 because I skipped those. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Here's the point. John and all of salvation history is pointing to the apex. It's pointing to Jesus as the apex of God's revelation. So John's saying, I'm not the light. I came to bear witness to the light that you might believe in him. So, so in, in John here, just to clarify, it's not John the Baptist. In fact, I don't think he calls him John the Baptist anywhere. It's John the witness. And the reason he just refers here to John is because there's no other John mentioned here. If John the disciples writing the letter, they would know this John is referring to John the Baptist. But John's portraying him not as one who's primarily about baptizing, but as primarily about one who's witnessing and pointing to, he's a witness to who Jesus is. And, it's, and John can say, I'm pointing to the one who, who ranks before me because he was before me. Though John might have been older by merely months and age, he's saying Jesus is much more preeminent because he was before me from the very beginning. And then verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And John's wrapping up this section by showing that as you look at the Old Testament, he's not saying the law was bad, and actually the law was good. It served its purpose. But Jesus is greater. We even see there was grace in the law. We just read Exodus 34. God is gracious and slow. So he's not saying that there was no grace in the law. He's just saying that Jesus is the apex. He is the climax of God's revelation and grace. And so Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the manifestation of God's glory in the tabernacle and in the temple. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is greater, not only because he's seen God and been with God, he is God. He was with God in the beginning at the Father's side, so he is the one perfectly qualified to make God known. Do you hear those words? Who was at the Father's side? He has made him known. If you want to know what Jesus, if you want to know what God is like, and nobody's ever seen God, John's saying, look at Jesus. Jesus is making known for us what God is like. And so later in John 14, 9, Jesus will say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so in the rest of his gospel, John proceeds to tell us how Jesus, the Word made flesh, Son of God, makes God known. You see, do you know why we can't see God? One, God is spirit. But two, sin separates us from God. Jesus has overcome both of these obstacles by becoming flesh 
and being sinless and dying for our sin so that we might be reconciled to God and see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the point is this. God has revealed himself in Jesus, the preexistent and eternal world. word. So come to him and believe in him that you might have life and walk in the light. Let's pray.